0: Fast, safe, and reliable. Interac e-transfer is one of the best ways to send, request, and receive money. In fact, Canadians use the service to complete 371 million transactions in 2018. That's nearly 11 times the population of Canada. Learn more at newsroom.interac.ca. Hey everyone, it's Friday, May 3rd. I've got Shannon Proudfoot of Maclean's and David Rebley of the Canadian Press here with me in studio... How are you guys? What's new?
1: I, I think a significant percentage of the pod has a cold.
0: I was
2: just about to say, I, was just sound, say I might be sure. a little hacky. I'm going to try to yeah. turn away. Um, it turns out that when your toddler coughs directly <laughs> down your throat, yeah. germ theory is right and
1: it does yeah. what you think it will that do. That and that will so thank it. you to my two-year-old. <laughs> I'm finishing up with number two. Uh, I think the second one was actually a little worse than the first. Okay. So yeah, but I'm, I'm back on the upside. I can hear it. Yeah, yeah. still no, a We're, we're a throaty on on bunch today. Okay, sorry
0: guys. You might just want to out right now let's hit it um, so let's go let's get right into it here over the past several months Canada's canola farmers have been uh, facing major uncertainties about the future of their canola crops and their livelihood at large back in January the Canadian Food Inspection Agency received word from their Chinese counterparts that um, they had found pests in a number of shipments from of canola from Canada and as a result in March they blocked shipments from two of our biggest exporters and it should be uh, underlined here Canada Exports 90% of the canola it grows, and of that, 40% um, goes to China. So, this is a, mar- a major, major market for us like multiple billions worth. Um Anyway, it prompted Canadian officials to then go test all the batches they had sent to China, and the results came back pretty clean. So we're left with um, – I shouldn't say pretty clean. clean uh, we, we are left in a bit of a, a scientific standoff, it seems. Canada's agriculture minister, Marie-Claude Bibo said she'd be sending agents from Canada's food inspection agency down to China to – what take a take a look at the process, I guess, they're, and make sure it's they're still legitimate. threading
2: a very careful needle. The federal right. government is not wanting to link this to a broader diplomatic row that I am quite sure we will be getting yes. into. So their thing has been that they want to send a delegation with CFIA scientists um, to to kind of very basically verify the claims. And the Chinese, it sounds like as of yesterday, Marie Claude Bibo said, have neither said yes nor no, but it, they've made mm. it pretty clear they're not really interested in engaging, which would suggest that the claims about pests are a little bit perhaps a
0: proxy for something right. else. I don't know. <laughs> so there's so so that brings into the question. There there are politics involved here, which which cannot be ignored. Right. Um so let's talk about this. What is at play below the surface, um, and that's being widely speculated as the cause of this trade standoff? I,
1: I think it is. It is widely believed that this is the uh, another stage in the Meng Wanzhou affair. The uh Huawei executive, Canada, arrested at the request of the United States back in December. Uh, we've had two Canadians taken into custody in the in China.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. who, are on, still in, in who are still
1: in custody. Guess, yeah. It's been, we're approaching half a year, uh, wow. little, little ways crazy. to go, but it's been many months. Apparently, they still have not had contact with lawyers. They've had monthly consular visits and that's, that's it. Absolutely uh, and it appears that China is widening the de- Dispute. They really want Meng Wanzhou released, and now th- there are these claims that Canada is sending dirty canola to them. Uh, and Canada, as Chen was saying, has sort of been engaging on the stated grounds. Right. You say that there are pests in the canola. Let us closely examine what pests there are in the canola. Right. And has not been able to make any headway on that front. Uh, and the latest thing actually is there have been pork shipments right, that right. have been held up. So other because things.
0: Of that- mislabeling or something. Oh well, mislabeling. Yeah. The mis- it's like an administrative
1: quotes, matter, right? supposedly. <laughs> and I mean, it is complicated because we right. do trade with China. There are a lot of Canadians in China. There will inevitably be genuine problems. There, You know, you send a lot of stuff. Eventually, something will be mislabeled. Something right. will make a mistake. Eventually, uh, there will be Canadians who commit crimes in China and yeah. uh, will be caught and, and tried for them. But there is a little more going on here than just the normal right. and- friction you get.
0: I'd be curious. I mean I I asked um Kelsey Johnson who is the ag reporter at Overnight Ico- uh, politics about this like she's she you know have we um confronted this this type of standoff before with China and she said it happened uh, in the Harper days um but it's not something we face a lot like we have pretty stringent— a common- Chinese tactic, though, right.
2: internationally. Maybe it hasn't come into play with Canada a lot. Right. Um, the, the most striking and worrying example, if you're a Canadian canola producer, would be the Norwegian salmon dispute, which um, had its roots in a, a Nobel Prize ceremony in which an empty seat was left symbolically for a Chinese dissident. China did not take kindly to that. And so shipments of salmon from Norway were halted for seven years. It took them seven years to resolve this. Five yeah. of those years, they left their ambassador in place because they were so afraid, which which is exactly the position Canada is in now, that if they tried to appoint someone new, China would not approve them. Hmm. So this is this is the kind of thing, uh, it, it, you sort of get the feeling that when China is displeased over a specific thing with another country, it's sort of this kind of holistic push. Yes. Um, and can. it tends not to get resolved quickly. And there isn't a quick out for Canada because the extradition process with Meng is going to take years with it's the us a, exactly, so like um, there is no kind of quick exit door here from this particular kind of pickle
0: the Trudeau government has stepped in sending some relief to canola farmers um, farmers work off of loan cycles essentially so borrowing money based on the value of the of the crop or livestock um, and and paying that back once they've made their sales so I think they have like something like 18 months um, to pay. To repay but so the the feds have basically upped the amount that they can retrieve from this pool known as the advanced payments program from uh, four hundred thousand dollars per year to 1 million and apparently um, it was like it was absorbed pretty quickly right away, right yep. away. people are in need of it um, but again this seems a bit like a short term term solution.
1: Um, it smooths things out a little bit right. for the canola farmers, but they're borrowing money against future crops that they might not be able to really sell. Right. And this, this it helps with the immediate problem, but if China is still refusing to accept Many Canadian canola shipments in a year, 18 months, and we'll, we'll sell the canola somewhere, I guess, but at much lower prices. And so right, will they then be able to repay those loans? It's going to be something that the government of the day is going to have to contend with.
0: That was my other question. Like, w- couldn't we just sell this? Crop to other. I mean, I guess it's just the the demand in China is so strong.
1: We sell a lot of canola to them. We sell a lot of raw canola seed, uh, which is then turned into canola oil there. I and mean, canola is kind of a signature Canadian product. It's mm-hmm. a, it's like the the can in canola is for for. Yeah. Canada um, and mm-hmm. this is a vegetable oil that was used for industrial purposes for a long time, and it was Canadian agriculture scientists who figured out how to make it edible essentially it had a, 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 a I gather an unpleasant flavor and appearance and they came up as with a the version industrial of industrial
2: roots would suggest yes mm.
1: <laughs> but they came up with a palate. it was i guess safety to just you wouldn't want to, but they found a way to make it palatable, and then that is why there is such a thing as a canola industry. uh, And we sell $2.7 billion worth of stuff to to, uh, just, I think it's just of the raw seed to China in addition to finished oil and other things like that. It's a meaningful industry in in Canada. And if we can't sell the stuff to China, then the prices we're going to get for it elsewhere are going to be a lot lower.
0: Right. Um, Is it true too, I'm just thinking about this, we also don't have an ambassador there in China? Yeah. So the
2: head of mission, after um, John McCallum was thanked for his service and sent on his way for talking too much, I'm going to loosely interpret the reasoning as <laughs> um, the head of mission there has been sort of the interim, uh, former f- f- kind of fulfilling the interim ambassador right. role ever since. Now that has been. One of the center points of the conservative criticism this week of the government, like get a new guy and new person they- in there. Like, mm-hmm. what are we doing? That's a big t- yeah. <clears throat> but at the same time, you have to imagine behind the scenes the reason they have not done something is because China doesn't exactly look like it's happy with Canada right now. So yeah. whoever they suggest is unlikely to be approved. So right. the liberals are sort of kind of stuck in limbo where the conservatives are very smartly making hay with this and saying, do something. And the the the, the government is, is a little bit stuck in that. China seems disinclined to to play ball. So what can they do? So they just sort of have this kind of interim, kind of purgatory state at the uh, the embassy there.
0: The, it sounds like the um, we were talking about this off air, but like the 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 obviously the response from opposition has been you know we've got to find we've got to be stronger on this. We've got to find a solution or not not even yeah I guess. But they had they do no part in offering up that
1: yeah they are the opposition <laughs> they don't have to but it is it has dominated question period the conservatives have hit canola again and right, again and again, yeah. and again and again and again all week and the gist of it has been well sheer Andrew Shear has said that the Prime Minister has done absolutely nothing which I don't think is borne out by the facts he has not solved the problem mm-hmm. but they they you know have they're tried would, to yeah. as we were saying tried to engage with China on the complaint that China has stated that it has. um, And they have helped out canola farmers, albeit in sort of an interim way. But the allegation is that the prime minister is weak and uh, has not managed to solve this. And if he were stronger, this would have been solved. The thing is, China is way bigger than Canada is. It has a lot more levers to pull and we need them more than Than they need need us. us. So we can stamp our little feet and yell and scream. But in the end, playing hard... tough with China is maybe it would work, but it's not the way I would bet.
0: And if we tried to put sanctions on some of their, um, like exports, like it would just wouldn't even dent their,
1: (laughs) they are 35 million Canadians, a little more than that. And one point some odd billion Chinese, their market is gigantic.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a tough one.
2: I mean, that's the thing is when you look at the commentary and not, and I don't even mean the opposition because obviously they're, they're going at it a particular way with a particular purpose as David, David mentioned. Um, When you see like quite smart, reasoned commentary saying we should do more or we should have a different approach, I haven't seen very good and specific answers about what that would look like. Like what options are open to us? Um, Guy Saint Jacques, the former um, ambassador, I've interviewed him at length. We did a big feature on the Meng Wanzhou case. He's a fascinating guy, and in my opinion, a terrific interview. Very like blunt and frank about China. Very well informed because of the time he spent there, but. And he had lots to say about sort of the way China operates. And, and the one thing that he said that stood out to me is that, and you saw this earlier in the earlier days of the Hmong case, they do care about their international reputation because a big part of this moment for China is trying to be more integrated with the international community and more legitimized. And and so you saw this when Canada was sort of, call, when we were getting, you know, those very nice briefs in the from the press gallery about all the calls that Christian Freeland and Justin Trudeau were making to other leaders and sort of lining up people on side complaining about the Canadians who were detained. And China kept saying, well, why are you doing that? That's irrelevant. Hmm. Um, which is sort of a strange way of saying we don't care about these other hmm. countries that you're lining yeah. up in opposition to us. So uh, I don't know how you activate that, but... But there's not, there don't appear to be a lot of options open no. to Canada because there is this sort of imbalance in, in power and heft and population and money.
1: And in fairness, on the other side, Canada, um, across now two different governments and, and beyond into the past, yeah. w- as a country, we can't seem to figure out what our attitude toward China should be. Sometimes we play hardball with China because we don't want to deal with, you know a murderous dictatorial regime that Mm. imprisons people and doesn't obey the rule of law and throws its weight around. And then other times we think that the best way to work with China is to engage and to, you know, help them learn how we do things in Canada and hope that they will take some of the lessons. And then China does something we don't like and we decide it's time to play hardball again. And so it's not like we have a national China strategy. No. That that lasts for more than, you know, a year at a time.
0: But I I don't see how this is going to stop. I mean, we've seen that there's been roadblocks with our peas, with soy, uh, soybeans, um, pork, now. pork um, and it's not like
2: our- the, the pork, like the slowdown with pork inspections seems to be designed to get Chinese importers to choose other countries. Like yeah. It seems designed to yeah, go, yeah. to show, to right. demonstrate the works are gummed up with Canada, you best look elsewhere kind right. of right.
0: Now, my question- did Conservative Leader uh, Andrew Scheer use Trudeau's uh, official title, or did he uh, did he just refer to him by Justin Trudeau? <laughs> how many? T- apparently, it's been like how many times that he's not used the official title of his of Trudeau a lot. Apparently, uh, it, yeah, often enough
1: times, that it, it does seem to be a bit of a dig. It's yeah. hard to it's hard to know what to make of
2: yeah, it. Yeah, I know. It's it, it feels like a a, a return to the. Uh, you know, nice hair, but he's just not ready. That yeah. ad, of twenty yeah. circa twenty fifteen, like it, like it's very like Justin with a certain tone. Yes, is, like is he's
0: still a child, or he's a pretty boy. Um, anyway, this is a big big issue, not one that's uh gonna leave us anytime soon. And um, yeah, as Kelsey was saying again on uh, when I was talking to her, you know, there's a, a huge mental health crisis happening with with farmers in Western. Um, part of our country and, and it's a, it's a sad, sad time right now. Um, Okay, let's move on. We have seen major floods seep through large parts of Ontario, Quebec, and New Brunswick in recent weeks, causing major destruction to communities um, nearing riverways and elsewhere. Local governments have issued uh, emergency warnings and called on their provincial counterparts for support and additional resources. The Canadian Armed Forces have been deployed in some areas as well to fill sandbags and help out where they can. As flood experts will say, these floods are the cause of the spring freshet or the spring thaw, it happens every year in Canada, and yet it always seems to sort of take me um, by surprise how much damage it can cause. Um, it, to be fair, though, it, it was a couple years ago, like 2017, we had a disastrous flooding, and... Um, essentially our, our thick snowpacks begin to melt and that's combined with rising temperatures and rainfall and you get bad flooding it um, I talked to a professor in the Department of uh, Environment and business at, at water at the University of Waterloo about it this week actually and he said um, it's why flooding remains one of the most uh, costly hazards that we have in this in this country Um and it's a lot to do with um, our development, our continued development of in, in, in infrastructure and in communities around riverways. So he was this this person I was talking to was mentioning that um, I hadn't I didn't know this that there was an agreement by the federal government and the provinces back in the um, 1970s called the Flood Flood Damage Reduction Program, and it was like a cost sharing program that helped develop flood maps and encourage development in areas not by water. Um, but it was shut down in the 1990s because it didn't prevent municipal governments from stopping big developers from building in those areas because, um, you know, not only do developers have their own engineering analysis and can kind of prove the the positives of it, but they get money from, municipal governments get money from these developers they um this is all like tax revenue so uh, it's it seems like we're in a bit of a a, a policy um it's, it seems like a bit of a policy error that we are we're facing <laughs>
1: It's I, I, there is there's a lot of complexity here. You, you would think don't build next. Our to Our listeners rivers can't that see fly. me right
0: now, but I'm gesturing like I'm <laughs> yeah. bringing
2: David onto a red carpet so that he can have at her. When it As comes to a municipal former planning city hall process. reporter, yes. Yes.
1: Uh, who spent a lot of time in planning committee meetings, and <laughs> at least in Ontario, it, it is virtually impossible to build on known floodplain because it's obviously stupid. You know, yeah. this is this is it, when there's a flood. This is where the water goes. And, and one of the nice things about floods of the few nice things about floods, is that they're fairly predictable. You look at the topography right. and you have some experience and you, you know water goes to the lowest points and when the river rises, you have a pretty good idea where that water is going to end up. We have communities like here in Ottawa, we have Constance Bay that are largely built on floodplains, uh, which would probably not be permitted today, at mm. least not without major engineering work to essentially take them out of floodplain. The saint marie le lac the community that was flooded out when a dike burst, it's built on an old lake bed. Uh, and then it dried out and they built a town on it, but it is no surprise that when the water levels are really high, the an old lake bed is where they're going to tend to end up, and particularly yeah. if the natural barriers get burst. The thing is we have... Um, adopted a lot of engineering solutions to these problems that do not always work. Right. And they can they can work on paper, but do not necessarily survive contact with reality. Um, as, and you only discover that when it's slightly too late. Also, it seems like we're getting a lot more water than we used to. Yes. And so we've accepted, like we've drawn maps of 100-year floodplains, areas that get flooded once every 100 years under normal circumstances, but sometimes we're getting floods like that every 10 years, every five years. In right. Ottawa, we've had now two and three years that yeah. uh, reached or exceeded those 100-year floodplain levels. And so you can't be responding with sandbags every single no. time. Or one hopes you won't be responding with sandbags every single time every few years so now provinces are talking about buying people out and paying them to leave
0: and is provinces are provinces responsible for the the relief um is it under the, does it fall under their jurisdiction for like relief measures and and whatnot? it
1: depends exactly what it is but okay. by and large yes right. it is it is there's sort also of a, the
2: federal i forget what that body is called that pays out because they, there was this sort yeah. of amazing stat this week, this week I think or last week that it's paid out more in the last six years than in the wow. previous 40 like yeah. just as a sign Jeez. I forget what that's I don't know if David if like you have the name at the tip of your tongue it's like a disaster relief fund yeah, that right. I guess for maybe just reasons of commonality tends to primarily pay out for floods yeah. but there's a massive like increasing curve of how often and how much people are needing help
1: apparently uh, unfortunately these programs they all have very similar names yeah. you know, the disaster relief right. mitigation <laughs> fund, the disaster assistance the sure. and so on yeah. uh, uh, the stat that I saw is that this program, though, paid out one point nine billion dollars last year and has already paid out a billion dollars this year. Oh,
0: so what are the, the 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 structural barriers that are that we use now? It's like uh, dams, dikes. And then, like, what? How are improved drainage right
1: so that the water comes in, but it goes away.
0: So, is there steps, measures we can do, and 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 in in Ottawa, like that we can?
2: Well, like the Netherlands would be a, a good example of sort of very forward thinking. It's it's it it exists. Like, there's sort of a, the the convergence of three rivers. A lot of it is below sea level, so they've become by necessity quite creative and progressive in how they deal with it. So they had this program called Room for the River that I believe is now sort of. Reach fruition. I think it sort of started in the mid 1990s and kind of ran for 10 or 15 years. And the idea was in part moving people away from riverbeds, mm-hmm. as we're talking about buybacks and things like that, recognizing that mm. they need to give the river room. And as we're saying, the river is increasingly wanting more room. <laughs> yeah. But also things like like moving back dikes, um, and they also do now. This is a constant. Um, kind of maintenance thing but it's sort of fascinating to think about they are constantly dredging their rivers and basically clawing down deeper paths for them so it's almost like Mm. if you had a swimming pool that was five feet deep and you dug it down to be eight feet deep there's more room for water capacity and then they have like dry sort of man-made lakes that are meant to be reservoirs like they have this whole system of kind of Running off. I don't know if you guys ever did this. I remember when I was a kid, and and the the snow would be thawing in my driveway. My dad would let me go out with a crowbar, and I would kind of carve all these tributaries. Yeah. Oh, and and you yeah, realize yeah. very quickly how how much water can be redirected. So they, but that's uh, you have to imagine quite an expensive and ambitious yeah. program. Not cheap, although, right. as. Quebec Premier Francois Legault kind of put his foot in and perhaps said inelegantly or unsympathetically this week, though not unreasonably, we're going to keep paying for mitigation and repair and sort of emergency band-aid solutions. And he was saying, I would rather pay people to, to move, to go live somewhere else. So right. it's kind of like, you're going to pay one way or the other. Are you going to pay for a bigger, right. more ambitious solution that will prevent this from happening? Or are you going to keep kind of patching as people get caught
1: in yeah. these problems
2: year after year?
0: Cause that's going to be expensive, the patchwork solution.
1: And these, mm. these mitigation things, uh, yeah, they are not cheap. Um, and they are oftentimes divided among relatively few landowners is part of the problem Mm. Uh, and Constance Bay is a village that's snuggled right up against the the river in Ottawa I know yeah I'm not sure how many people live there but it is not large and the cost of protecting it from flooding would be ginormous way more than the people who live in Constance Bay could afford and I think there are questions that well might have various very obvious answers depending on where you live whether this should be a responsibility of everyone to protect this village from flooding right if you live in Constance bay and you're as your you know an ancestral home that would make a whole lot of sense if you don't live there then i think you might ask why we're spending millions why, of dollars right, why we would spend
0: millions of dollars and, I've and we have, to have live done it
1: right in places but you know, including I'll, in ottawa it's like but can we keep doing it
0: it's like okay well i've lived i've chosen to live somewhere not by water so why would i you know i'm thinking of like even in ottawa like Zibi. you know that's a whole new development that's right on the water. I
1: don't know. <laughs> they say I mean, they have worked like crazy yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to, and it, I mean, in fairness, it is right by the water. It is right next to the Chaudière Dam, right? Just northwest of downtown Ottawa, right in the middle of the Ottawa River. Those islands, which are partly under construction now, have not been flooded.
0: Right. It's true.
1: Water is very, yeah. very high next to them, but yeah. they're not underwater.
0: Yeah. Now, to turn this political, as we always do, uh, <laughs> the liberals are using these events, um, fair, fair, as a, as a way to discuss the impacts of, um, or address the impacts of climate change to bring that up, right. As a talking point, um, obviously we know climate change is, is the result, you know, it's going to lead to erratic, uh, weather patterns. I don't know if this is, if it makes sense for them to say, Hey, look, this is actually happening. You can now see it. And this is going to continue to happen. And this is why we need to spend money in this area. Um, Do you think that is a fair assessment or in any way damages the Conservatives? um, Well, it it dovetails nicely, maybe
2: coincidentally or not, with the kind of tack the Liberals have taken this week, which is they've been going hard on, dear Andrew Scheer, where is your climate plan? You said you would have one, Where where is it, where is it, where is it? So there's a perfect kind of fit between the news events and the emergency coverage and the, you know, the very sad concerning images and the kind of political message they're hammering on. I mean, it it does seem that the scientists tell us that more extreme weather events, changing patterns are going to lead. To things like this, um, we've even seen, you know, flooding in weird places. Like, I think didn't Burlington get hit by like a massive, yeah. uh, like a, I think they call it like a water bomb storm, where it just got yeah. a massive right. amount of rain a few years ago? And that's not a place that would ever be prone. So even when we're talking about floodplains, you're starting to get weird weather patterns where things happen in places and in, under circumstances where they never should. So there is a certain amount of certainly like logic in saying, look, right. this is the this is the existential thing that is becoming yeah. real that we are saying we have to tackle. Yeah. <laughs> There's also no doubt that there's political right. hay perhaps to be made for the liberals so those two things I think can both be true.
0: Yeah. And, there, and it's just night it's easy to say look here's a picture it's happening um, we can associate it now. Well
2: you need that's what I've, I've thought all along is kind of the most uh, such an interesting problem with getting people to care about climate change and then getting them to accept changes yeah. that make a difference in their life is by its very nature something that is existential is a really hard thing to wrap your head around. Like it's like telling someone who's 20 that cigarette you smoked today is going to shorten your 80-year-old life by two years. Like, how, how you are you How are you supposed to wrap mm-hmm. your head around that and mm-hmm. change your behavior accordingly? And so, ironically, I sometimes think that the enormity of the risk that climate change poses to us kind of has a paralyzing or, or like a numbing effect. Like, how yeah. do you get people to care now and to accept, for instance, paying more at the gas pumps or, or whatever? Um, I guess maybe pointing to flood images, if you can convince people that there is a connection between connection. the two, is, yeah. is a pretty... Vivid way to do it. Right.
1: And uh, even if you accept everything that the the advocates say, we're talking about changes in averages. There have always been floods from time to time. There have always been wildfires from time to time. There have always been downpours and blizzards and droughts and so on. But the frequency with which they're happening is increasing. But that doesn't mean that there won't be mild... Summers and extra cold winters, and yeah, uh, that so figuring out actually showing that that this this these things that we are accustomed to seeing from time to time that this is a a, a become freakish and to a degree that's a problem, and that there is something that we can do to keep it from getting worse over time. Right, it's all very subtle. Yeah, it can be real, but extremely subtle.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. Uh lastly here, um Kaster Semenya, the 28-year-old two-time Olympic track and field champion from South Africa, will run her last 800-meter race on Friday. And why is that? Last year, the International Governing Body for the, for track and field, the International Association of Athletics Federations, issued a new rule that female runners who had too high testosterone levels had to drop those levels in the 6 months prior to a competition to meet a certain threshold, and if they can't drop it they be banned from competing in the 400-meter, 800-meter, and 1,500-meter events. This would affect Semenya, and she said this rule was discriminatory. Her and her team, and they took this to this case to the Court of Arbitration uh, for Sport, the highest sort of governing body uh, in sport. Um, and while all three judges on the panel on Wednesday agreed the rule was discriminatory and expressed reservations about how it would be implemented, ultimately the majority ruled that the uh, that the rule was necessary. Um, one judge, I think, said that that the discrimination was was there, yes, but it was necessary to. To reinforce and uphold the credibility of, of female athletics. Um, so, so Semenya's team would, would argue on the contrary, of course, that this is a, a natural genetic um, a variation. It's, it's, it's known as um, intersex or um, I think it's high. Hyper- Differences
2: of sexual development. So, right. so DSD is the, the okay. common short form okay. you often see applied to the IIAF rule.
0: Okay. Um, so, it's, it's again, it just two minutes, Naturally high levels of of testosterone, so it's it's raised questions about how much testosterone can impact athletic ability, and some say we're over um, giving it too much credibility as as something that can affect it. Um, I mean, for me, it's like how much does this differ from someone who has extraordinarily unique um, or or um, effective lung capacity, or really long legs, or the ability to grow muscles really um, well, or, I mean, it's, it's just one
2: common, um, like it's a very common refrain you've seen from people who like, like a common example is, look, we found out a few years ago that Mike, Michael Phelps almost literally is a freak of nature. He has half, less than half the lactic acid levels of, of other people, greater, I think, greater oxygen absorption capacity. I guess the answer to that would be, but we don't have separate categories in swimming that hinge on that variable. Whereas, and this is contentious, I am dreading very lightly here because this is one of those cases that like 50 other things come to bear, and I would argue in some cases have been brought to bear on this that don't really belong there. Um, If you're going to take the analogy of sort of natural physical variation, you could think, well then, do we think that say track sports are like basketball, where we accept that some people will be taller than others and height as an advantage? Or is it right. like boxing, where we do categorize people according to the size of their bodies right. for, for sort of sorting purposes? I, I read something that I thought was a useful framing for this, which was Malcolm Gladwell saying a couple of years ago that we need to not necessarily cast the Castor Semenya story as a human rights issue in line with our much greater consciousness and kind of openness thinking about gender differences, we need to think of it as a competitive issue. That, hmm. that it, I think it's useful, like, separating one set of those issues from another.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, like, I in mean, what
0: way is a competitive issue? Well, like?
2: so that's the effect of testosterone, right? Oh, right so okay. um, some interesting stuff that I read, which is that if you look at um, – Five kilometer world record times for nine-year-olds, which first of all, I didn't know that was a thing and I that is an amazing mental thing. image and now I want to watch the nine-year-old track and field championships of the world. More than anything. The times between boys and girls are identical. Something around 17 minutes and change. Really? If you look at 14-year-olds, the boys by that point, I think, run about a minute and 20 seconds shorter than the girls and it goes up from there. So that by the time they're adults, the difference is somewhere we're in the neighborhood of 10 to 12%. Huh. And so- there is certainly, again, levels of debate about the effect of testosterone, but generally the thought is that it helps in building muscle, um, and and that is obviously an advantage when you were talking about strength and endurance sports. So that while while the idea that we are increasingly accepting that gender is not a binary for the purposes of sporting competition, we might decide that sex is, and that testosterone is the most useful and fair proxy for that. So if you look at the testosterone levels of men and women, um, apparently the science here is quite established and quite stark. There is some range, but the range, and it gets into units of measure that frankly don't even mean anything to me because I have not a science (laughs) brain, but the, the, the normal range for women is that they would have no more than, is it nanomoles? It's nanomoles. Yes, it is. That they would have, that a normal healthy woman, by which we mean uh, people can have like a tumor on their pituitary gland or their adrenal gland that would, would screw this up, but a normal healthy woman would basically never have more than three nanomoles per liter. Whereas men start at 7.7 wow. and go up into the high 20s. So there is zero overlap between the highest level of women uh, expected level of women women and and in and fact and the lowest level of men in fact there's about a 75% difference. So there is an enormous offset there. There is no crisscross. And so if you accept or or think you have evidence that shows that testosterone and and we have examples in the 80s mm-hmm. um, and the Iron Curtain was still up. There is a widespread belief that um, Eastern Bloc countries were doping their mm-hmm. athletes with testosterone, yep. unknowingly, apparently. And and interestingly, the huge advantages there were seen in the female athletes and not the males, perhaps because their bodies were more susceptible to it or had lower levels to start with. There's kind of an interesting um, tentative example in Castor Semenya herself, which is between 2009 and 2015 um, – The the details are, I won't bore you with the details, but there, the IIAF had a, had a rule, a different rule in place that basically the assumption is without saying so publicly that she would have been taking medication to lower her testosterone level and her speeds fell like precipitously. And once that rule was sort of obsolete or whatever in 2015, her speeds, Hmm. uh, or sorry, her speeds went up. So her performance fell, um, so there, there is, a, there, but there is not a ton of evidence about yeah. performance in testosterone for maybe sort of analogous reasons to why there's not a ton of evidence about like drinking and pregnancy, like things that it is not yeah. safe to mess around with. And, and that would be some of the argument, like, I think you essentially had the IIAFs, I-A-A-F- judges saying, this is an imperfect solution, right. but this was always going to be unfair to someone. Like, there is no there is right. no judgment here that does not screw someone over a little bit through no fault of their own, yeah. but they still had to decide kind of where the balance of greatest fairness fell. And, and so some people are now concerned, and they acknowledge this in the CAS r- ruling, that there may be health concerns um, or, or sort of side effect concerns about forcing these athletes, and it's probably a very tiny amount, but forcing these athletes to take medication to lower their yeah. testosterone levels. So then you have a question of are are you effectively forcing them to do something to their bodies they don't want to? It's very complicated. It's
0: very complicated because so yeah, like technically she could she could keep competing, but again, what would she have to do to level those? Uh, well, she could, and it is levels.
2: important to state this is there's a narrow range of races that this applies to. Yes, um, not because. They don't think testosterone could have performance differences in other races, but because they restricted the restrictions to distances for which there is evidence of the effect of testosterone. So that is the reasoning for the narrowness of the ruling. I think also for legal reasons, it's considered sort of on more solid ground to make your ruling very narrow and very specific and targeted where there's evidence. But it also applies, I believe, only to sort of world-class events. There's And and the ability to set I-A-A-F. That is a really hard acronym. It is a really <laughs> hard acronym, acronym to just rhyme off. Um, it, it, the ability to set world records and to compete at those level of events. It doesn't preclude, you know, participating lower level. Obviously, if you're an athlete of Semenya's caliber, that's going to be unsatisfying to you. It does put restrictions on you at the highest level of competition that you are presumably going to be wanting to compete at. But yeah. those are some of the kind of contours of it.
0: Yeah. Um, but it, it yeah like it raises questions like for me I mean why uh, I do have thoughts around you know Usain Bolt we saw him who he was significantly outperforming his competitors and yet we didn't go okay let's test Usain Bolt's test I mean they probably did but they but there wasn't an issue of him having too much testosterone so it's it's kind of interesting that um you know the difference between male and female sports in that way I mean, yeah, I think it's a really it's a really um, a tough thing. And I, my, I guess my question originally was like how how have they developed this threshold? Who who deve- who determines and why would they determine? So it's actually that threshold, the, the threshold that they've set in this ruling is
2: five nanomoles per liter, which is actually considered by some experts to be quite generous. Some wanted oh, okay. them to set it at three, so that's considered to leave a fair amount of wiggle room, like basically no normally healthy woman would ever be at that level. So it's considered to kind of err on the side of caution or generosity, I suppose. Um, There's some really interesting research. Like there was a researcher who looked at, I think it was the 400 meter times of the top three women in the world and found that in any given year, 10,000 men right down to the high school level would run faster than them. So there are, I mean, because some people, you know, internet trolls and maybe some people of good faith, I don't know, would say, well, then why don't you just get rid of gender categories in sport entirely? Like just throw everyone into the same pool, make it equal. And the answer and the historical reason why we have divided them is because the women would never, ever, ever be even close to competitive. Like if we accept that there are some differences in their bodies and their capabilities that hinge on some biological differences, then that is why we have categorized them. And they are looking for the closest to perfect and fair Mm -hmm. threshold for kind of delineating those categories that they can find.
0: So South Africans have expressed like wide. I was actually interested to see like that the, the the amount of widespread support for for this um, athlete and, and um, that and that they fully stand behind her and, and think it's complete bogus. Um, I mean the, the scrutiny the scrutiny she has faced has been horrible. That you know her her medical records I can't even imagine this were leaked when they were testing uh, when they were doing the testing and then you have people around the world, you know, questioning whether you're a man and a woman. And there was like that time magazine headline. It was like, you know, could this world champion really be a man? Like, I mean, that part, I, I feel horribly. And I think that that's not fair at all, but there are, it's a really tough issue otherwise, because I can see the argument on either side.
1: I think, and Shannon touched on this uh, a couple of times, uh, my first instinct when I heard the – my f- first response when I he- heard the, about the ruling was, oh, that's nonsense. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah, a person yeah. too. who Me just – you know, the Michael Phelps example. <coughs> Michael Phelps has extraordinary physical characteristics that make him a great swimmer. Castor Semenya has extraordinary physical characteristics that she was born with that make her a great middle distance yeah. runner. It, it, then, as is so often the case with things that sound ridiculous when you first hear them, I, I did actually read the decision. Or, Well, What's Out is an executive summary. I don't think they've released the the full voluminous decision, but right. even the executive summary is pretty long. Uh, and I think it does represent a good faith attempt to grapple with some really, really difficult questions. And they could have said... I don't think the decision actually says this outright, but it only much of it only makes sense if they're saying that she has XY chromosomes, yeah, which customarily you know, have been thought of as male chromosomes. And uh, arguably you could say, well, she has XY chromosomes. She calls herself a woman, but if you have XY chromosomes and you're a man, she should compete with men. <laughs> right. That would have been a very blunt force way yeah, of yeah, yeah. tackling this. And uh, whether they have succeeded or not, I don't think I have the expertise to say. I do think... Get the sense that they have genuinely struggled with a way of being fair, not only to her, but to other competitors and to people in similar but different circumstances who will come along later.
2: Yeah, absolutely. They seem to be at pains to say, I think, recognizing rightly that the sensitivity and sort of growing consciousness about this kind of thing in society in general, that they were not interested in litigating what makes you a woman or not. And they have, I I think, sort of, I don't know if it was part of this ruling or a separate thing that they have said they will accept um, official identity documents like passports. If your passport says you're a woman, you're a woman. As far as Mm. we're concerned, like we are not interested in litigating gender identity. We are interested in setting a metric by which we can categorize people for the purposes of competition. Now, that effectively means that for the purposes of competition, they are kind of slotting people in, but they're, they, they're trying, but. but they're, but, but I think that like, as you're saying, like, I think that, that kind of gets at the kind of difficult needle they're trying to thread here. And the fact that they really are trying to thread it carefully.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, it's complex and our clock says seventy-one twelve. So yeah. I'm thinking we need to <laughs> zip out quickly Do down the rabbit hole or something. I don't here? know. Is it like the 12th or never? Uh, <laughs> that's all for us today. Can I get your uh, Twitter handles, please?
1: I am at David Riefley. And
0: I am at S Proudfoot. And I am at Turnbull Sarah. We'll see you next time. Interact helps Canadians access their funds their way. Products like Interact Debit and Interact e-Transfer have made money mobile, taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interact. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.